On today's episode of the London Lyceum, we have the pleasure of talking with Dr. James Arcati, professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. We talked to him about the nature of the Eucharist. Uh, what is it? Uh, what are the positions that are out there on it? And then we really zero in on his understanding of the Eucharist uh, impanation. Uh, so I found it extremely interesting. I learned a lot in this interview. I really enjoyed it myself, so I think you will too. I do want to note real quick, briefly, uh, occasionally there is a little bit of, I guess, challenges with the audio at times, but at no point is it to where you can't hear it or understand it. And I think it's it's so good um, content-wise uh, that you're going to want to definitely listen to it. So don't think, uh, you know, we didn't notice it's there and I apologize for it, but man, the content is just so good. You definitely need to listen to the whole thing. It's worth it. Uh, it's just one of the challenges of, of podcasting, I think, um, and trying to get on awesome guests like Dr. Arcadi. Sometimes uh, internet doesn't cooperate. Um, but you make the best of it, and, and really, it's not even that bad. So I just wanted to mention it, though, for those who, who do notice it. Uh, we apologize for it, but the content is uh, smoking hot. So I don't know if that's exactly the terminology you'd use, but uh, I think it's really good. So take a listen in on this. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners again to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your other co-host, Brandon Askew. And we are the podcast that hopes to encourage deep and clear thinking, uh, particularly for those who have a Baptist background or maybe not a Baptist background, as we have a guest today who is not a Baptist, which I'm really excited to talk to uh, and learn from, uh, James Arcadi. So I believe he was at Fuller um, most recently, and now he's at Trinity teaching. So before I guess get the cat out of the bag, I mean... Uh, Dr. Arcardi, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself to situate um, for those who may not be familiar with you? Yeah, sure. Thanks, guys. It's great to be on with you, to be able to have a conversation with you. So uh, you're right. I'm, a, I'm an assistant professor of biblical and systematic theology at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School I'm in my second year there. And, and prior to that, I was on a three-year postdoctoral researchship at Fuller Theological Seminary on the Analyst Theology Project there with um, Professor Oliver Crisp, who also was my uh, Dr. Vodder, my doctoral uh, advisor at the University of Bristol. And um, going back further, I did my seminary at Gordon-Conwell and uh, undergrad at Biola. And um, yes, yeah, so I do, do systematic theology, work on various doctrines, uh, doctrine the Eucharist, maybe most uh, specifically, but also Christology and theological methodology and other sort of related issues. Great. So I think what we're most interested in talking to you about today is the doctrine of the Eucharist. Uh, and I know you've done quite a bit of research and writing on this. Uh, so I'm really interested to hear kind of your take on it uh, and ask you some questions as far as how you've kind of uh, hashed out the nature of the Eucharist. So before I get into, I guess, your particular position, uh, I know you sketch out various models uh, of it. So could you just give us a brief, I guess, intro into the different types of models uh, and where they sit on a, on a spectrum? Yeah, sure. That's a great question. And that, in some sense, was kind of an interest for getting into the research myself, just uh, coming on from a more sort of, um, I don't know, sort of Baptistic, uh, low church environment uh, before becoming an Anglican and kind of having an interest in, in the Eucharist, but seeing only kind of like two ways of thinking about it, either kind of a, a pure memorialism, sort of a Zwinglian tradition, 
or like the Roman Catholic position. Um, so, but really, there's, there's a wide range of positions on the doctrine of the Eucharist, specifically on Christ's presence in the Eucharist um, within the tradition, even within the, the present tradition. So I sort of lumped together, we might call corporeal mode presence views, like the Roman Catholic view, uh, like the Lutheran view, um, or a family of Lutheran views, maybe on a, a middle uh, side of the spectrum, to the spectrum, you might see more um, spiritual presence kind of views, typically associated with Calvin and Peter Martin Vermeule, Martin Bitzer, um, Thomas Bramner, and the like, and they're kind of in the, uh, that aspect of the Reformation. And then on the other end would be those in the more Zwinglian tradition, wherein Christ is said to have not really any special presence in the Eucharist, no non-normal mode of presence uh, in the Eucharist than he might enjoy in any other place uh, in the world given um, divine omnipresence. So, and there's various um, uh, varieties within those spectrums too, but kind of those three main families are kind of how I see things being laid out on the spectrum. Okay, and so there are three different families and they're all zeroing in on, I guess, determining what exactly um, the biblical text means when Christ says, this is my body. So I guess on the way you've laid it out, it seems the corporeal is saying, uh, this is metaphysically present, like it's really actually there, whereas you have the other spectrum, uh, I guess you would say, Christ, maybe, I don't know where he is, he's, he's not, <laughs> he's not Everywhere metaphysically there, he's not uh, spiritually there, he's none of those. So why is it, I guess, do you think that so many in, in American culture would be on one side of the issue, at least, uh, I guess, more in evangelical context? Uh, saying that Christ is apparently everywhere except for uh, in the Eucharist. Yeah, hopefully he's not ex like not there or in some fashion, but he's just there in the normal sort of way. He's you know Christ is anywhere. I mean, um, this is kind of a sociological, I suppose, observation um, than it is a, a theological one. But you know, a lot of North American evangelicalism um, coming out of a revivalist sort of um, tradition, as well as coming out of um, uh, traditions that maybe had, um, I don't know, sort of less of a concern with the metaphysical um, inner points of doctrine. Um, kind of mix that with, I think, maybe kind of an allergy to Roman Catholicism, you know, sort of an, an uh, anything that, that smacks too much of Rome has to be, you know, has to be disregarded. And so uh, any kind of real presence view or a choral presence view is automatically, you know, treated with some kind of suspicion, I think, at times. I, I think that's actually more, as I said, sociological than theological. I don't think there's really anything uh, inherent in um, Baptistic or free perspectives like hermeneutics, for instance, or even metaphysics that would, um, that would uh, you know, outlaw a, a real presence view. It just because it hasn't been part of the Part of the values or the sociological desiderata of those who are in that tradition or those traditions. Okay, so now I'm really curious about your particular view. How I know you've written a monograph on this. Um, so those of our listeners who who haven't had the chance to take a look at it, I definitely commend going and finding a copy of that. Um, I'm. It seems like you try to create some sort of middle path uh, on this between, uh, I guess the real real presence type views. Um, can you talk to me 
what, like, what exactly is your view, how it differs uh, from others. And I mean, I may be completely ignorant on this topic, so excuse my ignorance if I am, but are you drawing on any particular historical sources in particular saying, this is the stream that I uh, find myself in, or is it more uh, just creative based on, you know, I guess, philosophical observations? Yeah, um, um, fair point. So maybe just um, laying a little bit where I find myself. So the title of my book, which was released last year, 2018, from, from Cambridge University Press, is An Incarnational Model of the Eucharist. And that just says what exactly the view is. So when we look at the, uh, look at the word institution there, the Dominican, the Dominical words, when Christ says, this is my body and this is my blood, and this is then repeated in churches, typically following Paul's um, restating in, in 1 Corinthians and like, but, you know, ministers stand up there and, and, and repeat that and say, this is the body of Christ, or they say, this is my body as though they were in the person of Christ and the like. Um, well, how do, how do we understand what's going on there? Uh, it seems to me kind of linguistically, exegetically and linguistically, you've got an object there, the, the, the bread, which has two, um, at least on a linguistic level, two names, both bread and um, the body of Christ. Um, now, how are those two names related to one another? Well, within the tradition, it's not been common to use the incarnation as a mode of talking about what's going on in the Eucharist. We have a similar linguistic state of affairs in the incarnation. You know, you can you can point to Jesus and say, this is God, and you can point to Jesus and say, this is a human being. And that's just what standard Chalcedonian Christology uh, delivers for us. So, um, so, so the basic idea is to take the incarnation or the metaphysical dynamic of the incarnation with respect to the two nature doctrine, and then try to apply that to the Eucharist and see if we can't get a, a similar or at least analogous uh, way of explaining how it is that one object can be, can be two things. Um, traditionally, this is a, a stream that we see at times within some of the, within some of the patristics. Um, Theodore, Irenaeus, uh, even Justin Martyr kind of make some comments. Not, as, not very specific, but at least sort of suggestive of this incarnational relationship there. Um, Cyril as well. Um, it gets picked up in the medieval period oftentimes as a way to uh, juxtapose the traditional Roman Catholic view of transubstantiation, where you don't have two things, you just have one thing, you just have the body of Christ, and you no longer have bread anymore, even though you have the, uh, the empirical features of bread. It's not actually bread, it's the body of Christ. So, so an incarnational view gets put forward as you know, a view you can't have if you're a traditional Roman Catholic. Within the Reformation, then, um, Andreas Osiander, a contemporary of Luther, picks this view up and, and advocates for it. And Luther himself doesn't actually uh, specifically go for, his, go for this, but I, I think that um, the, the Lutheran perspective might be the closest cousin to what, uh, what, we put forth, what I put forth as an incarnational model of the Eucharist. I use the term impanation to refer to this view. So and that's a kind of a ripoff of the incarnation. So if incarnation is being infleshed, impanation, that's impane, pane is bread. It's just like being embedded. So it's as though the body of Christ is um, being put into the bread, or as I would think of it, being extended to include the bread. And so that term, impanation, would distinguish this view from something like 
consubstantiation or transubstantiation, other you know terms you learn in the seminary. Um, uh, so, but the basic idea is to, 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 to utilize the metaphysical dynamics of the incarnation as a way for talking about and explaining how it is that this piece of bread can also be the body of Christ. Okay, so I, I just honest question here. When it comes to impanation, did you coin that, or was that is that somewhere else before you? Oh no, no, that that goes into the into the medieval period as well. Okay, I mean at, at least thirteenth century, if not earlier than that. Well, that's fascinating. So, I have no idea. <laughs> it, so, how does your view compare to the Lutheran and Catholic view? Uh, when it comes to um, the consecration of the elements. So um, as far as the role of the priest in all of this metaphysical change that's taking place. Okay, yeah, good. So um, let me distinguish the metaphysics of the uh, elements first, and then we can talk about canonicality. So as I understand the Roman Catholic view, you've got, you've got two things you have to say or, or confess to. You've got to confess that the object on the altar after consecration is the body of Christ, and you've got to say a second thing, that it's no longer bread. Okay, so those are two, mm-hmm. two, two statements one has to affirm the, to the truth of. Um, consubstantiation, as explicated, and that's not a Luther used, and Lutherans get kind of upset when you say Luther's a consubstantiation theorist, but whatever. That was a term from the medieval period as well. Basically, you're just trying to say that there's, there are two substances with one another there. But typically, you don't see, though, the real robust education for um, how there might be a union between those two things. Like, how are they actually there together? To me, it seems more like a kind of co-location motif. The, the bread is, uh, the body of Christ is in, with, and under the bread, whatever in, with, and under is supposed to mean. Um, if I were kind of playing this out in Christological terms, I would take consubstantiation to be kind of a Nestorian view. So you've got mm-hmm. two things there that are that are not really clearly related in any kind of unity. Impanation really tries to push the incarnational angle and say that we don't just have two things that are co-located there. We we have a real union between the bread and the wine, just as we have a real union between the the divine nature and the human nature in the one person of Christ, the, the hypostatic union. Um, so that's maybe kind of differentiate some of the metaphysical aspect of, of, the, of the elements there. When it comes to the consecration, or how I want to call it, the institution, and who does that, like I actually try to, in, in the book, try to avoid some of those questions because I, I'm trying to offer this, this motif or this model as an ecumenical model. So I, I'd like to think that you could insert this view on Christ's presence in the, in the Eucharist into whatever you know, antecedent commitments you might have to theories of ordination or church, you know, ecclesiology um, or the like. So it's really important for what I'm trying to put with respect to the, to the Eucharist is that you have, um, you know, you have some person who is a designated, you know, official or designated uh, individual by the ecclesial community who is about re, um, re-saying what Christ has once said so that we can do this in remembrance of him. Um, but I, I place a lot of uh, emphasis more on Christ's activity in um, bringing about this metaphysical reality. And I like to leave Christ uh, free to show up whenever whenever he wants to. So I don't have a, a hard and fast view, at least in the book, about um, you know who can do it or what the, 
necessary sufficient conditions of ordination be that would bring about sort of reality. Okay, and you know, man, I'm just I'm really interested in all the interplay that's going on here. So, when it comes to I guess denominational typical positions on the Eucharist, I know you mentioned your Anglican, and I think you mentioned that this this doctrine somewhat played a role in you becoming Anglican. Uh, so, is this closer to Anglicanism? And uh, if it is, like, I guess, was that the sole motivator for moving in that direction? Uh, good, good questions. Um, on, on the first part, um, Anglican, Anglican Eucharistic theology is a very diverse field, um, and I, I, I don't think there is it's not the Anglican view on the Eucharist. There are many ultimate uh, many, uh, 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 Anglican views on on the doctrine of the Eucharist, uh, all the way from those that are super close to the Catholic view to those that are sort of functionally Zwinglian and everything in between. Um, I've argued in print that I think Thomas Cranmer, who is the first Archbishop of, of Canterbury, one of the first leaders of the 16th century Anglican Church, um, uh, had a, a roughly reformed-ish, roughly kind of view with his own with his own unique angle on things. Um, so that is any kind of indication of one aspect of what an Anglican view is. So I think that the view that I have, or I'm putting forth here, is, um, is harmonious with some Anglican sensibilities. And I interact a little bit in the book with one particular Anglican theologian, Lance, Lancelot Andrew, who's a, I don't know, venerated and theologian from, from my tradition, um, who, who says something, utilizes Incarnational discussions when he's talking Eucharist as well. So it's not not the Anglican view, but I think it is a an Anglican view. For myself, um, I think I was uh, the Eucharist not that issue that drew me into Anglicanism from kind of non-denominational Baptistic environments. Uh, there was there are other factors having to do with with the with the aesthetic of Anglicanism, having to do with the personal piety that I saw expressed within the morning and evening prayer services. That was really important to me, um, as well as being able to articulate some classical Reformation theology in conversation with the wide tradition of the church. Um, but the kind of sacramental experience was something that was a part of that theological aesthetic mix for me. And so it, uh, I was getting drawn in and because of the, because of the uh, important value in the Anglican tradition, but uh, I was I was confirmed in the Anglican tradition. Um, I guess that would have been like four years or so prior to starting a PhD, which is where this work um, ramped up in earnest. So it wasn't the deciding factor. Um, you might say, in another sense, actually, that it was becoming an Anglican, which led me to think about the Eucharist in more, depth. and therefore this um, this academic work was a result of my own personal journey. Okay. Yeah, that that kind of leads into my next question. And, um, you know, just studying church history, it seems like the Eucharist um, over the history of the church has been super important to a lot of, you know, massive figures in church history, specifically thinking of somebody like Martin Luther. And you mentioned you had a background in a more low church, um, Baptistic um, type setting. And it seems like the Eucharist is almost just like a um, it's an add on at the end of the service, you know, 10, 15 minutes, and that may be only done once a quarter. Um, so why do you think that most contemporary evangelicals put, um, or have such a low view, uh, of the supper? Yeah, great question. Um, I mean, I, 
your part is, is, is spot on. This is a, was a super controversial doctrine in the 16th century. I mean, think about Luther and Zwingli and Marburg Colloquy. I mean, this was the issue which made it such that the Lutheran camp and the Zwinglian camp couldn't get on board with another. Or you think a few decades later um, in, in England, it was the Eucharist that was the most controversial topic with respect to the, the divisions um, between the church in England and Rome. Uh, the doctrine of the Eucharist, and actually the metaphysics of the Eucharist, is the reason why Thomas Cramner was executed. So super controversial um, at, that, uh, at, at that time, as well as at some other points in the church's history. Um, and its controversy speaks to its importance, I think, within those particular contexts. And I mean, if you know your church history, you know that none of the early reformers wanted to, wanted to do away with frequent celebration of the Eucharist. Uh, Calvin, Cramner, they, they wanted to you know, continue um, celebration of the Eucharist on a, on a frequent basis. And in fact, Cramner was trying to get more people to come to the Eucharist because the whole phenomenal experience in the late medieval period is that people would receive, the, the lay people wouldn't receive the Eucharist, um, but for a couple of times a year, perhaps, you know, Christmas and, and Easter and the like. And he wanted regular participation on a weekly basis as part of, a, part of the value that he saw that this, this practice has in the spiritual development of, of the faithful. Now, again, why is it the case that it's not understood or not practiced as frequently? Well, I mean, I, I suppose it's another kind of sociological question there. But perhaps theologically, it might be um, a, a viewpoint that sees the Eucharist as being not as important or not as worthwhile or not as efficacious towards one's spiritual growth as other things you might do on a Sunday morning. We all have limited time on a Sunday morning, so how are you going to spend your time? You know, you're going to spend it with songs, you spend it in reading scripture, you're going to spend it in, in hearing a sermon, and you know, I'm all for all that kind of stuff there um, as well. But when you have a more, uh, uh, a more maybe a robust understanding of the doctrine of the Eucharist, then I think one begins to see how this can play a really uh, pivotal role in our understanding of the presence of Christ with us. We think about Christ being uh, named Emmanuel, uh, that is God with us. I think in a very real sense, Lord's Supper is a manifestation of, of Emmanuel, of, of God with us. And if that's the case, if you kind of buy into that, well then I think the desire to have more frequent participation in the Eucharist begins to emerge, uh, begins to emerge from that. And again, there's nothing I don't think within um, evangelicalism or environments that that says you can't do this sort of stuff. In fact, I've had friends who are doing church planting and non-denominational church planting, no affiliation, no structure, that kind of stuff. And yet they were doing every week in their mm -hmm. storefront church plant. Um, for them, they, they were understanding that there was something going on here with respect to this ceremony and this, this, this practice that, that complemented, that augmented the preaching. It wasn't a competitor to preaching, but it actually in some way an enhancement to our experience of the word uh, heard and the word preached, and I think that's I think spot on. I think that's you know, that that's classical Reformation theology, in fact. I like that. That's good stuff. Um, before Brandon asks another question, I want to kind of ask a nerd question. So, um, I know in I guess in your thesis, when it comes to the impanation or the embreading of Christ. Uh, I guess at the table, 
uh, you draw heavily on Clark and Chalmers' extended mind thesis. I think you mentioned Richard Cross and how he uses that uh, for model of the incarnation. Um, I'm curious. I, I, it seems like the stuff that I've read on the extended mind thesis, there are, I don't know, I guess some significant challenges. I think you mentioned uh, the, I guess the problem of doesn't everything end up becoming uh, a part of you. So could you talk to that a little bit? Like, I guess, what is the extended mind thesis? And then how do you overcome the challenges of uh, that come along with it? Right. So here's where the, the analytic and my analytic theology maybe emerges a little bit more clearly. Um, borrowing from philosophy of mind in order to think about Christ's presence in the Eucharist. So I, think, I see the extended mind thesis, which is basically trying to say that there are, um, there are bits of the world that get incorporated into our cognitive processes such that they can actually become parts of our mind. So Clark and Chalmers uh, or those in that, ca that camp would say, you know, thinking isn't all in the brain, or thinking isn't all in the head. Rather, thinking can happen and does happen by means of other, you know, other bits of the world, other enabling devices. So that's, that's, that, that kind of leads to a, a more general comment that we oftentimes have enabling de devices that allow us to extend ourselves in the places or domains that we wouldn't be able to be Otherwise, um, think of so uh, you, you mentioned Richard Ross's um, article on Duns Scotus, where he was talking about how a knife um, extends your ability to do something. Like, I just don't have the ability with my hand alone to slice an apple into into pieces. But when I grab onto a knife, I, I fuse that knife, so to speak, with my body's um, efficient causality, my body's motive power. And then I'm, I'm enabled that knife to do something with my body that I wasn't able to do previously. So you, I'm extending body by means of that particular knife. Now, uh, uh, Cross uh, is using that to talk about the incarnation. So the human nature of Christ is an enabling device of the divine person to extend the divine person into the human sphere. So just in virtue of being a divine person, the word is not able to walk around and eat broiled fish and you know be abused and suffer on the cross. So that the human nature actually enables the word to do these kinds of things, these human things that it wasn't wise able um, to do. Um, so then applying that to the universe, so see then if you can see the connections there, the bread and, and wine are enabling devices that allow Christ to extend his body um, in such a manner such that he can be um, you know, on, on the altar, on the table, as well as uh, at the right hand of the Father, or wherever you think the human nature of Christ is presently. He can both be there as well as extending himself by means of these enabling devices, bread and wine, um, to be in, in multiple places. Does that help? Yeah, no, I think that's helpful. Um, I guess my my interest in this, I mean, I see, I guess I see some benefits to it. Um, but as I'm think, turning it over in my mind, I, I'm wondering, it, it seems like, does this in any way, I guess, end up, um, I don't know, shrinking somewhat the inseparability of the union that, say, Christ would have in the incarnation? Um, I, I don't know if that question makes sense. But it's just, as I think about it, I'm like, 
I don't know how I feel about this. I see benefits from it, um, but it doesn't, I don't know. I don't know what to say. Yeah, I don't you know did if that makes sense. Too, yeah, no, you did mention too, and I didn't get to this part of the question about, well, doesn't this make anything like the body of Christ or, or something like that? Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Or everything. Um, on, a really, on a really strict interpretation of extended mind thesis, like anything has the potential for being incorporated into Christ's body, so to speak. Like, you know, there's a, there's a sense in which, um, uh, what is it in John? What is it in John when Christ grabs the whip of the whip of cords? He's like grabbing John a two. John two having a whip, and he's like using that. Is he is that his body? Is he extending body? Well, you know, on one interpretation, the minuses is all of our our bodies are extended anytime we're using using these enabling devices. Um, I mean, maybe that's that's fine. Uh, but on the other hand, um, I guess it, it gets back. What's the dialectic or what's the project here? The project is we have this we have this phrase. This is the body of Christ of a piece of bread. We have that in scripture. We have that in liturgical tradition. Um, and so I, I'm not trying to argue that it's it's necessarily the case that um, that uh, that this happened. Rather, I'm just trying to say this is what we're handed in scripture. We're handed in the tradition. We're handed in our liturgical worship. This phrase that this bread is the body of Christ. Here's a metaphysical situation that makes that come out as true, or makes that come out as an apt statement to describe a metaphysical um, reality. So, um, uh, so I think that that's how that's how it might be helpful in that. Yeah. End. No, that that is helpful. I, I think that's a that's a good distinction that you're making there. That um, it, this is kind of I guess making sense of that statement. This is a way to make sense of the statement in that way. Mm, yeah. Yeah. So that's that's helpful. So. Before we let you go, I want to bring this back to the context of of the local church. So um, let's say you're talking to pastors or church planners, maybe even just church members, um, and you have the opportunity, as you do right now, to to tell them, um, you know, these are the necessary features um, that should be present when we celebrate the Eucharist. Um, what would you want to leave them with um, when it comes to the topic of the Eucharist in general? Um, maybe things that they're neglecting that they shouldn't neglect or things that maybe they haven't thought about in relation to the Eucharist in general, just, um, closing thoughts on it. Yeah. I mean, you mean like necessary theological features? Yes. Yes. Or, or maybe even just, um, practical features. Of, I mean, of how I think, we observe it. I think you should have been wine, but, but that's, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, I mean, that's the kind of thing I'm asking. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. I, I've always found it odd that especially like, and I guess evangelical, yeah. I guess backgrounds it's it's super necessary to have this type of mode for baptism. Yeah. But when it comes to the Eucharist, I guess we can exchange what, you know, the text says for, you know, a shot glass of grape juice. It's but really I weird guess that's that's my that. own. I don't, yeah. <laughs> that but yeah, that's the exact kind of thing I'm looking for like. So on on that practical level and this goes a little bit outside of what I uh maybe say in in the book. Uh but I mean, I'm going to be accused of being like a biblical fundamentalist or something like that here, but I think, well, you know, if the text says bread and the text says wine, like, you know, we, we know what bread is, we know what wine is, those things should be used. And of course, there's there's disputes about whether or not wine is actually like the wine we have right now, if it's some other kind of fermented thing, or if it's so like diluted by water, it's not really alcoholic, like, fine, wh- whatever, you can make those, make those kinds of cases. But like, you know, when someone who's reads the text and it says wine, like, well, we know what that that means it wasn't there. Welch's so, basically is. I, I, I don't think so I, yeah <laughs> um um 
So I, I, you know, I'd say, well, you know, why not just kind of use those things right there? And of course, you can then create a, or kind of a pivot to other larger biblical theological considerations about why the wine and tie that into Passover and tie that into the Last Supper, or the Last Supper as a last Passover. Mm -hmm. You want to go that route, or you take the you know bread and connect it to manna, which seems to happen in John six and a lot. So there are other considerations for why the elements themselves are are, are important to a robust theological appreciation of what Christ is doing there. So, um, so those considerations uh, in that regard. But in terms of why and like the spiritual benefit, for me at least, it's in this whole presence motif and I'm pivoting, it, pivoting back to the term Emmanuel. I mean, isn't this in part like, the, now I'm gonna get, get really meta here all of a sudden, but the human journey is about trying to like find God and trying to like be in the presence of God. And certainly we, uh, those of us who are classical theists think that God is omnipresent and so God is everywhere. God is, has the, the creator and he's sustaining the universe and exists right now. Um, but sometimes that's kind of hard to feel or hard to get deep down in our, our soul. And the incarnation is this really specific way that, Christ, that God has come to us, that in the person of the word, God has, has come to be with us. And we get his, his presence by means of the in fact, as well. And so we have these various modes that God has specially um, deigned to come into our presence. And I think that the Lord's Supper is, is one of those modes as well, tied to the incarnation, tied to the preached word as well. And so if you can think about that and want to, you know, and, and teach your people about that as well, teach your congregation about that. I think this is what's, what's going on um, uh, in scripture. This is a little bit tangible. That's kind of a, especially a theme that I kind of put forth in the, in the, uh, the, the third chapter of the book, trying to create more of a, uh, a biblical theological context, thinking about why presence issues is a, is a, a pertinent thing to think about in the last supper narrative. So I tie things to uh, in the synoptics to what's going on in John 14 through uh, 16, uh, as well as in Luke through Emmaus story as a, as a bookend to the last supper. Um, and I think what you kind of, if you take my lead on that, you'll see that presence issues are, uh, are an important theme of what's going on in the institution of the Lord's Supper. And these are things that then can be applied to our own context um, Sunday by Sunday. And that, that's, Thank you. Yeah, yeah, that's really, really helpful and especially interesting. I mean, I, I myself uh, love the fact that you're doing uh, analytic theology in ecclesiological matters. It seems like ecclesiology, for whatever reason, has been kind of, I don't know, left in the corner by itself. Uh, I don't know if it's the homeschool kid in the room or what. Uh, it seems like people just haven't put forth a lot of effort in this area. And so I have very much, uh, I guess, enjoyed and I'm thankful for the work you're doing. Uh, even as you've been explaining it to me here, I'm starting to think about all these other uh, connections and, and the way the way you've done it is really, really well done. So uh, for our listeners, I really encourage them to check, check, check out Dr. Arcady's work or Arcady's work. Excuse me. Um, so for those who want to know more about your work and follow the things you're doing in the future, where can they easiest, I guess, where's the easiest way for them to, to follow what you're doing? Uh, you mean like personally? Well, I mean, you can find me on Twitter. I'm just at James Arcady uh, on, on that, uh, that website there. Uh, 
also got my bio there at TED's, you know, if you got students out there, I'm happy to have uh, eager young analytic theologians come in and hang out with <laughs> us at TED's doing master's degrees or, or PhDs or the like. Um, but uh, yeah, or I've got an Amazon page too. You can check my Amazon page for new publication. <laughs> How's that for plugging myself and getting? I like it. Uh, And I will definitely plug your book uh, whenever this episode drops. So uh, no worries there. Um, If anyone wants to be a student at Ted's, I've got to warn you, it's really cold up there and the Chicago Cubs are close. So I don't know (laughs) if that's a good thing or a bad thing. (laughs) It is cold. I won't deny it. I'm from Southern California originally, and we've got snow on the ground out here and it's barely November. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, um, I, I want to extend a huge thanks to you for taking the time to talk with us today. I, I really enjoyed it. I, I think our listeners will too. Um, and for those who are listening, uh, you've been listening to the only analytic Baptist and professional podcast that I uh, know that exists. And you've been listening to a uh, gentleman and scholar and Anglican and James Arcati, who I definitely encourage you to check out uh, as you continue your reading and thinking about all things theological. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.